Now, Isaiah 68, 1-3 Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kingdoms to the brightness of your dawn. The second reading comes from Isaiah 61, 1-3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. This is the word of the Lord. We've got such a good future ahead of us. We've got a whole new creation to look forward to where we can live with you forever. And yet, Father, if we haven't yet put our trust in you, our future is much worse. And Father, you're going to tell us tonight that the choice is in our hands. So help us to choose well. Amen. Well, when Disneyland opened on the 18th of July, 1955, it was a morning, as you would imagine, of huge excitement. A year earlier, Walt Disney had announced that he would build a huge theme park on the 160 acres of land that he had just bought in Orange County, California. And he promised that he would make this park the best of its kind in the world. The happiest place on earth, he called it. Well, he didn't disappoint. At a cost of $17 million, which is ridiculous now, but back in 1955, that was a huge amount of money, he built a park of five themed lands and 20 attractions. Maybe some of you have even been there. By 2 a.m., the first of that first day's 50,000 guests began queuing outside the front gates. I want you to imagine that you're there now, in line, waiting for the first day of Disneyland to open, and that you're a kid. How are you feeling? It's 2am, and it's dark, and it's cold, and all the snacks ran out ages ago. 
And it feels like forever as you stand there waiting in the dark. But then, finally, the dawn comes and the sun peeps over the horizon. And the light starts glinting on those magical towers and the rooftops become bathed in sun. And finally, the doors of that city are thrown open and you and thousands more like you pour inside to explore. The long, dark wait through the night is over and now you're in the happiest place on earth. That's a big moment, right, in your childhood. You know, you remember that moment for the rest of your life, won't you? But now I want you to imagine this. You're in the same line waiting through the same night with the same ticket in your hand. But when the doors open, you decide not to go in. That's a big moment too, isn't it? The day you're at the opening of Disneyland but decide not to go in. It's the same day for everyone, the 18th of July, 1955, but whether it's the best day of your life or the worst day of your life depends entirely on whether you decide to enter or not. Last week we saw Israel trapped in darkness. God had returned them home from exile in Babylon and given them a second chance to live like they were meant to, but they wasted it. True, someone would come who would save them from their sin and their selfishness, the servant, Jesus, but he's not come yet. For now, Israel is still in its gloom. They're sinful, they know they're sinful, and there's nothing they can do to change it. Well, Isaiah 60 comes like a sunrise on this scene. Look there at 60 verses 1 to 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. The current Jerusalem may be in darkness, but God will build a new Jerusalem where sin will be over and everyone will love each other. A genuine happiest place on earth. And according to Isaiah, the sun is just beginning to rise and sparkle on its towers now. And God will invite everyone to the opening day. But whether the opening day of the new Jerusalem will be the best day of their lives or the worst will depend entirely on what they do with their ticket. Will they enter or refuse to enter? That's the choice that God's people face in today's section of Isaiah 60 to 64. And it's the choice all of us face too. So let's get into it. If you're following along in your leaflets, which I encourage you to do, our first point, a new Jerusalem will open. God promises Israel that he will build them a new Jerusalem. And he says that it will be amazing. It will be great and full and forever. First of all, it will be great. It will be wealthy, full of herds and gold and spices. Look at the way he describes it there in verses 5 to 7. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. 
The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedah's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar and I will adorn my glorious temple. It'll be wealthy, full of good things. It'll be well ruled. Look there at verse 17. Peace will be their governor and well-being their ruler. Will be secure. Their gates will be impregnable and invasion impossible. Look at verse 18. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. What will this new Jerusalem be like? It will be great. It'll be wealthy and well-ruled and secure. But it won't just be great. It will also be full. It will be full of Israelites returned from exile. Verse 4. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. This new Jerusalem will be full of all of those Israelites who've been sent off into exile but have now been brought home. It'll be a wonderful homecoming. But it won't just be full of returned Israelites. It'll actually be full of people from all over the world. The nations will flood into this new Jerusalem to serve those returned exiles. Look there in verse 10. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favour I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night. So that people may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. You see the same thing in 14. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, that is Jerusalem, of the Holy One of Israel. It'll be full of the nations serving those returned exiles. But the nations won't just be coming in to serve God's original people, Israel. It won't just be the Israelites and their foreign butlers. No, these nations will actually come in to find sanctuary in Jerusalem themselves. Look at verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. They're attracted to this city. Verse 9, surely the islands look to me in the lead of the ships of Tarshish. That means probably Spain. Bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to the honour of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he's endowed you with his splendour. This will be a great city. It will be wealthy and well-ruled and secure, but it will also be full, full of Israelites, people from all over the world. It will be great and full. And best of all, it will be forever. All the ebbs and flows of history, which have so often caught Jerusalem up in its currents, they'll stop. This golden age will never end. Jerusalem will be the everlasting pride of all generations. Verse 15. No longer will violence be in the land. Verse 18. They'll possess the land forever. Verse 21. God will build a new Jerusalem and it will be great. And full and forever. In fact, this new Jerusalem will be so amazing. 
it actually becomes clear by the end of the chapter that he can't possibly be describing a merely earthly city at all. Look at verse 19. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. This city won't be lit by the sun or the moon, but by God himself. In other words, Isaiah is using this city as a symbol of a whole new creation that God is going to build. And the New Testament confirms it. When the Apostle John is describing what the new creation will be like, he quotes Isaiah 60. Calling it a new Jerusalem, he says, Revelation 21, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is its its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. I mean, you just, it's just pure Isaiah 60, isn't it? He's just completely ripped Isaiah 60 off. Both John and Isaiah promise that one day God will make a whole new creation, a new physical world that will be full of people, full of the glory of God. In Isaiah 60, God's not just promising to rebuild a city. He's promising to rebuild the cosmos. And that is the ultimate hope of the Christian life. You see, I think as Christians, we sometimes think that the end point of the Christian life is dying and then going to heaven. And by heaven, we mean sort of the floaty place you go when you die. You know, so you become a Christian and your sins are forgiven, and you live the Christian life, and then you die, and your spirit goes to heaven, and that's the end. That's the last stop on your journey. It's just you and the angels and the harps and the clouds. Now, the angels and the harps and the clouds, the Bible doesn't say anything about, but that's how we think about it. Now, it is true that when Christians die, the Bible says that our souls do go to a place called heaven, where we are in a conscious, bodiless, blissful relationship with God. And that is a great hope. That is the place where every single believer who has ever lived and died is now. But it's just not the last place that we go. It's the second last. What the New Testament calls heaven is not the last stop for believers, but the waiting room for our last stop. The new creation. You see, God has made us as physical beings. So if we never ended up having bodies again after we died, if we just stayed as souls in heaven, there'd be something incomplete about our salvation. So, God says, one day he will raise us physically to life and put us in a new physical world where we will live forever. That is the ultimate hope of the Christian. That's the hope Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 60. Now, what exactly will that new creation look like? Well, we don't know all the details. The Bible only gives us hints, talks about it in picture language, like he does here in Isaiah 60. 
We know it will be physical in some way. I mean, he pictures it as a city here. And when Jesus rose from the dead as the first part of this new creation, his body was physical. We know it will be full of lots of people who will be in relationship with God. He will be their light. But beyond that, we don't know. But we know it will be good. We know it will have everything you need and peace and safety. We know it will be full of people from every nation. And we know it will go on forever, never end. Guys, that's what awaits you if you're a Christian. Isn't that a great hope? Now, not many of us here have got creaking joints, but some of us have. To you few, have you got creaking joints? Well, one day you'll get your body back and live in a place where there'll be no more creaks. People will run, but don't grow faint. Your life boring. Non-stop school, non-stop work, non-stop chores. One day it'll be great. Rich and peaceful and secure. Are you lonely? The new creation will be full of people, all of them lovely. Are you scared by death even now? Worried by the transitory nature of life, how fast it's all going. This new world will be forever. It will never end. That is your hope. Now, of course, for some of us, this may all seem too good to be true. Just wishful thinking. Pie in the sky when you die. It just seems too convenient that there could be a life after death in a new world. But friends, if that's where you're at, can I challenge you? Whether it's a convenient thing or not is really beside the point. Surely what really matters is whether it's true. So C.S. Lewis, the great Cambridge and Oxford academic, wrote this. He said, we're very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven, by which he means the new creation. We're afraid of the jeer about pie in the sky and of being told that we're trying to escape from the duty of making a happy world here into dreams of a happy world elsewhere. But either there is pie in the sky or there is not. If there is not, then Christianity is false, for this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. But if there is, then this truth, like any other, must be faced, whether it is useful or not. So if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, and frankly you are sceptical about this claim, first of all, thank you for coming, we're so glad you're here. But secondly, can I say to you, let me challenge you to face that scepticism and work this out for yourself. Come along to that explore course that you heard mentioned in the prayers. Keep coming to church and ask really hard questions. We would love to help you find out if this is true or not. Because if it's not true, then there is nothing to worry about. There's also nothing to hope for. But if it is true, then there's a whole new world for you to explore and to live in forever. So come and check it out. God promises in Isaiah that one day he will create a new Jerusalem, a new world that will be great and full and forever. That is great news. But how do you get into this new world? It's so great, but how do you get there? 
Isaiah says, it'll be through the servant. Isaiah's already introduced us to the servant of the Lord, a figure who will forgive people their sin and give them peace with God. Now, in Isaiah 61, the servant speaks again for the last time in this book, and he says that he'll also be in charge of letting people into this new creation. Listen to Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. It's coming up on the screen. It's the the servant speaking. He says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness from the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, we know it's the servant speaking because the spirit of the Lord is on him and the servant is the one who's got the spirit, Isaiah 42. And we know it's the new creation that the servant is speaking about here because the language he uses He will free the prisoners from darkness, 61 verse 1. The darkness that covers the world and that the new creation will dispel, chapter 60. He calls this inbreaking of the new creation the year of the Lord's favour, 61 verse 2. And the servant can give people access to this new creation because he's paid for all of the sins that would normally keep us out of a place like this. He told us way back in 53, but he, the servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. The servant suffers and that brings us peace with God, but also the right to live with him forever. God sent the servant to forgive people's sin and so we can let them into the new creation when it comes. But you know, the servant hasn't just come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He also proclaims the day of God's vengeance. Listen to 61 verse 2. I've come, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, on the day when the new creation comes, God won't just save those he favours, but also punish those he doesn't. And that will be awful. He expands on that day of vengeance in Isaiah 63. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. You see, God is loving, but he's also holy. And because of that, he can't just let evil go unpunished. He must one day stamp it out. And that's what the day of vengeance will do. The New Testament says it's talking about hell. When John writes the most graphic description of hell in the Bible in Revelation 14, he quotes this part of Isaiah. It's awful. But at this point, you might have a question in your mind. Because if the servant has already died for everyone's sins, 
Why will some people still suffer God's punishment on that day? Why is it that what will be the year of the Lord's favour for some people will be the day of God's vengeance for others? I mean, hasn't the servant paid for all of that? Well, Isaiah says yes, but his suffering only makes forgiveness available for people, not automatic. To be forgiven, Isaiah will say, you've got to ask God to forgive you on the basis of what the servant has done. You've got to choose to enter this new creation. So in Isaiah 64, the last chapter in this block that we're looking at tonight, Isaiah's talking to God on Israel's behalf, and he says, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. In other words, that God would break into this creation and bring in the new one. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But that's the problem. People haven't done right. They've forgotten his ways. Verse 5. But when we continue to sin against them, your ways, you are angry. How then can we be saved? Good question. According to verse 8, it's by asking forgiveness. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. What are they doing? They're asking for forgiveness, aren't they? They're asking God to forget their sins. And he can because of the servant. But they've got to ask. So as we close, that's the choice Israel face. Will they ask for God's forgiveness or not? If they ask, that will be the start of the year of the Lord's favour for them. The moment they receive forgiveness now and get the ticket into the new creation when it comes. But if they don't, it will be the start of the day of God's vengeance for them. The moment they reject God's mercy now and get shut out of the new creation when it comes. That's the choice Israel face. And you know, it's the choice we all face too. It's the choice you face. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue and he asks for the scroll of Isaiah, Luke chapter 4. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus declares that he is the servant. He is the one who proclaims the year of the Lord's favour, offers forgiveness for sins and entrance into the new creation. He will be the one who suffers on the cross to pay for our sins and rise to life so we can rise to life too. 
And because he does all that, because he's that guy, he's also the one who can offer us tickets, so to speak, to the new creation. One day, the new creation will break in like a dawn on a dark world and anyone who wants to live there with him can come. But, he says, you've got to choose. You've got to ask for forgiveness if you want to be let in. A story is told of a small airline. And on the four-hour flight, the hostess approached one of the passengers and asked if he'd like to have dinner. What are my options? He asked. The hostess replied, yes or no. (laughs) Well, there are our options. Yes or no? Eternal life or not? Choose life, won't you? Choose life. That's what those four people did a week ago at the end of the Explore course. Made a commitment to Christ. They chose life. They won't look any different. But if they stick with him, which we pray they will... They'll be going to the new creation. They'll be living with him forever. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that why we're here? Isn't that what gets us out of bed in the morning? Choose life, won't you? Oh, I don't need to, you'll say. I don't need to choose life. I was born in a Christian household. I don't need to do that. Yes, you do. No, 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 no. But you you don't understand. I went to a Christian school. I've heard all of this. I've done RE. I don't need to make a choice. Yes, you do. No, 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 no. I know my Bible really well. I go to Trinity Youth. I go to Trinity Young Workers. I'm part of the Christian Union. Look, I don't need to make a choice about this. I, I don't need to do business with God personally. Yes, you do. You've got to do business with God personally. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter if your brothers and sisters are Christians. It doesn't matter if you've been going to church your whole life. You personally are the one who is going to one day die and face God. And he will ask you, who's going to pay for your sins? Will it be you? Or was it Jesus? And you're going to have to tell him what you chose. Choose life, won't you? And do it now. Because the offer of forgiveness and life won't last forever. Did you notice how in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus reads out that bit from Isaiah, he leaves off the bit about the day of vengeance. He just puts in the stuff about the year of the Lord's favour. Now what's Jesus doing there? Is Jesus going soft on hell? Does he sort of get a bit nervous towards the, the bad bit at the end of it and he just kind of chokes? No. No, he's just wanting to stress what he's come to offer now. What he wants us to have now, the year of the Lord's favour, forgiveness and life. That's what he wants us to choose. But one day he will return to destroy evil and then the time will have run out to accept his offer. So choose and choose now. God is going to build a new Jerusalem, a new creation where there will be no more sin or darkness and anyone can come in and can live. You can. But to enter it, you've got to choose You've got to admit your sin and put your trust in the servant Jesus. If you do, that will be the beginning of the year of the Lord's favour for you. The start of a whole new eternal life. But if you don't, it will be the start of the day of God's vengeance. There's a choice between heaven and hell. 
between life and death, and Jesus holds the keys to both in his hand. So which will you choose? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you hold out a glorious future to anyone who wants it, a real happiest place on earth, a place where we can live with you that will be great and full and forever. And we thank you that the servant Jesus has made it possible for us to enter, people who don't deserve to go there because he's died on the cross for our sins. And yet, Father, we know that we've got to do business with you personally to get there. We've got to accept that forgiveness. Father, if we've already done that, Thank you for doing that work in our lives that made us do that. Help us to fix our eyes on heaven, to live all of our lives in the light of that great future. And yet, Father, if we haven't done that, Father, we pray that we would do business with you even now, admitting our sins, saying we're sorry, and making the best decision of our lives to ask Jesus to pay for our sins so we don't have to and we can live with you too. Father, we pray all of these things for your glory and for our joy. And we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.